recorded at Get a Grip Studios in Toronto, Canada. Get a Grip Management production and in association with the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Presented by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, the National Lighting Bureau, the Illuminating Engineering Society, and of course, the International Dark Sky Association. This is Starving for Darkness. I know you're hungry, folks. I know you're starving. Starving for Darkness with Jane Slade and Michael Colligan coming up real soon. But before we get into that, it's not always and every day that you come across something magical. That's right. I'm talking about Evluma, Greg Eric. Evluma, E-V-L-U-M-A dot com. Talk about a company who's committed to the darkness movement that we're pushing here with this podcast. Area Max, it's utility-grade LED luminaire designed for residential street lighting, parking lots, security lighting, and area lighting applications. What's nice about this thing is that it has type 5, type 3, and dark sky friendly lens options on it. Surge protection better than anyone, 20kV, 10ka, and lightweight housing, easy toolless access, great fixture, replace anywhere up to a 250 watt HID with this thing. Check it out. Whoo, the magicians down at Evluma coming in hot again with another great dark sky ready product. Go to evluma.com. That's right, Greg, evluma.com. Check them out. Hello, listeners and darkness lovers. Welcome to another episode of Starving for Darkness. My name is Jane Slade, and I'm here with my co-host, Michael Colligan. And we are so pleased to have Dr. George Schaff, DVM, here today with us. And George, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. And you pronounced my last name right. That is a record for a (laughs) first-timer. Well, that (laughs) is excellent. You're so welcome. And we start every show with the same request of our guest. Please tell us about an experience that you had under the dark night sky that gave you a sense of awe and moved you to a place of feeling extremely human. Um, Please share that with us. Yep, so I I have two. I've been listening to your podcast, so I've been preparing for this question. But uh, (laughs) I think the first time uh, the, the night sky really struck me, you know, sort of, in my soul would have been actually up in Canada. My family used to have a home outside of Kingston, Ontario, uh, that we would spend the summers at. And, um, even though the, the sky is slightly polluted around Kingston up there, it was much different than it is where I live now. And, um, that was the first time I'd ever seen the Milky way as a child. And we'd watched, uh, meteor showers and stuff there. And I, I, that had a really big, big impact on me as a child. And then more recently, uh, a camping trip out to Joshua Tree National Park, uh, which is mm-hmm. in Southern California, very dark place. And that was the first time that I had ever been outside walking around with no moon and was able to see where I was going just with starlight. And um, that, that, that really made an impression on me that, you know, this is a light that we just, I just never see. Probably not smart given all the uh, rattlesnakes out there, but it still <laughs> made an impression on me. <laughs> Well, that has me immediately wondering. I think they're diurnal species, but um, yes. I don't don't take my uh, advice on that, listeners. I have no idea how to avoid rattlesnakes. Um, <laughs> but what I do hear is that you had a, an experience as a kid and that you were able to link that also into your adulthood. Um, and I want to say that there is a, a statistic I've heard that eight out of 10 school children do not see the night sky as it is in North America. And yeah. what a loss that is for our little youngsters to not have that impression. Uh, Mike and I recently shared our dark sky experiences um, on another separate podcast. And mine was as a kid. Yours, I think, was as a, as a kid too. Yep. So to, to have this lack, especially in the age of the digital storm that we're in, mm. I think it's massive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we're going to dig into that because I'm just so interested. Uh, so I actually 
when I was a little kid, people were like, oh, she's going to be a veterinarian. That's what <laughs> they thought I was going to be. So I have a ton of questions based on the little kid inside of me. Excellent. Now, please describe your life's work. You're a second generation veterinarian. Is that true? That's correct. Um, so, sort of an unusual childhood. I was homeschooled until I went to college. Um, grew up on a farm. We had horses, chickens, llamas, dogs, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, and because I was homeschooled, I had a very flexible schedule. So a lot of my time was spent working at my father's animal hospital. Um, so I, I, the first time I helped with anesthesia, I was five years old because my dad couldn't wow. get his technician to come in in the middle of the night. So um, sort of been around the, the medical side of things my entire life. Um, for a while said I wasn't going to be a veterinarian, so I uh, rebelliously joined the military and then realized that was not the life for me. Um, so I finished my service commitment and went to vet school. Um, when I started vet school, I thought, you know, I'm just going to get through this, get my credentials and go back and work with my father. And while I was there, I realized there's so much more to veterinary medicine than just, you know, being a Labrador mechanic, so to speak. Mm. Um, <laughs> And uh, that's how I got interested in pathology, which is what I do now. Um, but also, uh, I had the opportunity to do all kinds of cool stuff and work with wildlife veterinarians who are essentially ecologists that, you know, do some interventions. I got to do some research in the Galapagos Islands. And um, so, yeah, veterinary medicine is a very broad field, and there's a lot more to it than, you know, just giving your dog a rabies shot. And um, so it's kind of a cool place to be right now. Well, I wanted to ask about that. So you uh, studied comparative anatomic pathology. Uh, and so what exactly is that when we're talking yeah. about yeah. There's probably a lot, of, yeah. a lot of veterinarians that don't even know what that means. I have to explain myself frequently. Um, so I work at a medical school um, that trains just human doctors. Um, but it's also a big research facility, too. So what we what comparative medicine basically is, is taking what we know about disease and animals and applying that to human medicine. Oh. Um, just, yeah. So, you know, and I'll, I think of any number of strange things that occur in animals and that can be used as models. You know, for instance, the Syrian hamster is the most studied animal for circadian rhythm and sleep studies, you know, and a lot of that has been applied to, to uh, the human that that field in humans. So that that's in a nutshell what comparative medicine is. Well, I have to look into this Syrian hamster. Uh, that's yeah. fascinating. Why is the Syrian hamster so studied? <laughs> I, I don't actually know why it is. I mean, one of the reasons is they're easy to house. They're small. They're inexpensive. Mm -hmm. they, they're prolific breeders. Um, and, and their circadian rhythm just must be very similar to ours. I don't know. I don't know what started that study in them. Um, but yeah, they are, they are used frequently um, for that specifically. Well, I do so much writing about animals. So I'm, ac yeah. and plants and all the species. And, you know, one of my main messages is just that all of us evolved with the natural daylight cycle. So when yep. you change that, so I, I think it's actually a very fascinating angle in that you have comparative anatomic pathology, because I think that you know, we can't really separate ourselves from the plant and animal world and yes. that we're all being impacted. So I think that your um, your study is actually going to be very useful in the coming decades to kind of unearth what's been happening. So right. you are uh, you study this and how does how does the topic of light pollution enter your work and your your thought process? Yeah, it it uh, it doesn't enter my work. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to be here today is, you know, get this conversation started sort of across the dividing line. You guys are in industry and I'm in the, the science end of things, but it's a, veterinarians are not, I, I don't know a single veterinarian that has mentioned light pollution outside of sea turtles um, and the effects it has on sea turtles. <laughs> I, I roll my eyes every time someone yep. mentions sea turtles because yep. they're adorable and they die on beaches. And it's the only one thing we talk about because that's right. the easy one. I get really yep. pumped up about sea turtles. Sorry. Um, yep. No, nothing against sea turtles themselves, but humans are obsessed with them as the emblem of the topic. And I'm very yep. tired of it. It's all living things. Yes, I, yes. I agree 100%. But yeah, so I feel like I'm sort of like, you know, the voice 
crying alone in the wilderness. You know, I, I feel like the only veterinarian that cares about light pollution. And it sort of occurred to me in vet school because we had to learn about um, synch synchronizing estrus and horses for breeding. And so that's done with artificial light manipulation. You know, you just start leaving lights on for a couple hours longer at the end of the day in their stalls um, to get them to come into estrus earlier in the year. Um, same thing with um, uh, laying hens, chickens. Uh, so it's a way to uh, uh, get the chickens to reach sexual maturity quicker and then also start laying, you know, inevitably laying eggs sooner um, was by manipulating uh, their day-night cycles. Um, and yeah, so just, you know, if we already know all that and we know how easy it is to change a horse's hormonal cycles just by adding two or three hours of light to the end of their day, you know, but we don't think about it, anything else, you know, it stops there. So that's sounds like a good project for comparative medicine, George. Yeah, um, no, it's perfect. It's perfect. You're right. You know, so I'm, I'm listening to that and I, I often wonder to myself why, you know, humans we seem to waffle between, you know, um, while, you know, there's people who, who see humans as, you know, negative or bad, or there's people that see humans as good. Most people don't see humans as part of the wildlife. No, not at all. Yeah. And, and I, I don't understand that at all, that perspective. Yeah. Like wherever you are, yeah. if you're a Christian or you're an atheist or whatever, it doesn't matter. There's like this idea we're either above wildlife or we're killing wildlife or we're evil. But anyway, we're in control of it, whatever it is. And we can't yeah. seem to get our heads into a space where it's so obvious that shining lights in your face at night on your screen or, um, you know, <clears throat> having uh, a street light go into your window would have this uh, some sort of effect similar to what you're talking about with horses, whether that's a sexual reproduction thing or whether it's putting girls, like I know there is a phenomenon of girls going to puberty earlier these right. days. That's a real thing. Right. Um, you know, they younger and you know, younger ages, you know, across the spectrum. Why is that? You know, um, you know, yeah. the, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, humans, you know, we, uh, our, our, uh, reproductive cycles are, are not, um, seasonal, um, like a lot of animals like horses. So that, that particular issue is probably something else. I, I you know, I won't speculate, but probably not. I, I mean, yeah, it's interesting though. Uh, so like mice who, um, are essentially nocturnal animals, um, if you shine uh, blue light on a mouse, on it, you pluck all their hair off. I've not done this study, but someone has. Yeah, I know, not very nice. You pluck their hair off, shine a light on them for a, a, an extended amount of time, and it stimulates their sympathetic nervous system because mice want to be in the dark. They don't want to be in the light, so now they're they're in the fight or flight mode and it stimulates hair growth almost immediately it stimulates the uh, stem cells in their hair follicles almost immediately when they're sh uh, this yeah, blue light is shining on them so um, yeah it's just it's crazy what all the effects light has that we uh, just don't know about and and you're right Michael this is it's this, this low-hanging fruit for my field honestly you know there's so much to study there well so getting into what we have been doing which is manipulating poultry we're, we're really into anything we eat we'll play around with light and study it <laughs> yep. and i will say i won't mention the request but i i was asked to um do research on chickens and the best light uh and i didn't accept because that's just not how i want to use my work Right. Um, in terms of developing poultry. And that's not the point of what we're doing. And right. um, so what I have heard, and I want to run this by you, George, is that red light um, actually use, is used in poultry farms to actually imp, uh, imp, make more egg production, essentially. Um, right. and, and so what do, you, what do you know about this? I'm curious. I want to pick your brain. Yeah, uh, 
I don't know that anyone knows exactly why that is, but I, the the chickens are one of the few examples where you find that uh, the physiologic changes are stimulated by red light as opposed to blue light. Almost everything else is very sensitive to blue light, and and why a chicken would be sensitive to red light, is, I don't know that we know. All we do know is that a lot of different. There's been a lot of different studies where they keep chickens under green light, chickens under blue light, chickens under you know just uh, normal daylight, and the red light for whatever reason um, causes them to reach sexual maturity several several weeks earlier compared to the other groups and then start laying eggs earlier. Um, some studies have shown that they are more prolific layers or that their eggs have thicker shells and stuff like that, but th that, that side is contested. But what is not contested is red light has this effect on chickens, which is strange because everything else is blue light. Um, well, what I had heard is that the red light actually emulates the light of spring, or I, I read this, but I don't understand that answer. That doesn't really make sense to me. I don't think of spring light as being reddish. And right. then there's another study that actually says that when you shine red light for birds, actually it's coupled with their magnetoreception so that they will actually take off in the wrong direction. And you're right that red light is sort of the exception um, that blue light tends to be the trigger, but that red light actually tends to be um, this exception with birds, which kind of throws everything off in terms yeah. of, um, but I like it because it, for, for what I say is that nothing replace dark, replaces darkness. Right. Um, you, there's no magic wavelength of light that's going to help. So Correct. we have, so if you're going to try and use red light only, well, you're going to really affect the bird species. Yeah. So you mentioned something before, which is that, you know, you're not working uh, with this information about light and the health of all living things in your field. And I think that's fascinating because you're right that uh, ecological papers tend to be s sitting on shelves with all of this information that's not reaching the public. It's not even reaching your field in a right. way. So right. what do you see as being the answer to this? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, I, I think it starts with conversations like these. I mean, we're pretty disparate professionally. This is sort of a random collection of people here right now. Um, <laughs> you know, I would love to, I've been watching some of your videos, Jane, and reading some of your stuff. It would be awesome, like, to get you in front of a group of veterinarians to talk about your work. You know, I think it's just something that it, it's not that they don't care about it. They just have not thought about it, um, you know, and um, and vice versa, you know, maybe we need some veterinarians talking to industry folks or something, but um, it starts there. Um, and then, you, you know, I, you guys talk about this all the time on the shows, how you get the public to care about this, because once the public cares, then the funding follows and then people like me can do the work. So, you know, uh, it would be very difficult for me to write a grant to study light pollution and, you know, rhesus monkeys or something like that. You know, the, the, that's they, <laughs> the, the money is going to go towards studying coronaviruses and cancer mm. and, you know, stuff like that right now. So, so we need to talk, we need to educate each other. We need to figure out some way to get the general population to care a little bit and then and then the money comes behind that um for the research um but yeah i i for me you know just sort of obviously i'm at sort of the beginning of my career so i'm trying to make this you know a part of my professional you know who i am be the crusader for this so well you know in terms of developing that care i've long believed that we can't get the public to care with wildlife alone. It's not going to work. However, I, you're making me think of this on the spot. People do care about their pets insanely. Yep. I, yep. You've all met Ferdinand. I He may show up on the show here. He's my little cat. I think he just walked, he just walked by. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and you talk about your personal interest in the physiologic and spiritual psychological effects of light pollution. Can you break right. into that a little bit? Yeah, well, I, in my mind, they're two. Well, I guess it's a little silly to say they're separate, but in my mind, it's separate. The lack of darkness, the fact that 
for instance, I, 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 photography is my hobby. I like to, and I, astrophotography is really cool to me. I like to take pictures at night. And uh, I live in sort of a rural area, but it's uh, light so unregulated here. All my neighbors have these LED safety lights that they keep on all night to protect their, their junk from God knows what. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's really sad when I go outside and I can't see anything. And I, that, so that's sort of the spiritual part to me is that we've just, there's a part that I, that I can't see, you know, and that it goes with every, you know, light, uh, sound pollution is, and air pollution and all of that sort of goes together. But so that's the spiritual side of things. But then the, the physiology, um, the more scientific side of things is the, the way our retinas work, the way you and I see and perceive light, the way a nocturnal animal sees and perceives light, um, the way those messages are transmitted to and through the brain, um, and then their downstream effects, you know, such as stimulating hair follicles or entrainment or whatever. Um, but yeah, the, the physiology is fascinating, especially with um, nocturnal animals. So you and I, uh, we all have sort of a mixture of rods and cones in our retina. The cones are what we use primarily. They have different pigments in them, and that's how we see color. And then our rods are sort of very sensitive, but lack in detail, and that's what we use for night vision. So if you look at a nocturnal animal, um, or even a crepuscular animal like a deer, um, they are predominantly rods in their retina. And the rods are very sensitive. So if you're driving down the road in your new BMW with your ultra bright LED lights and a deer walks out in front of you and looks towards your car, they're going to be completely blinded by those mm. lights. And you know, that's you know, possums, another you know, up, up where you guys are, probably porcupines, you know, all of those animals are something that um, are, are blinded by bright light. And so, you know, that's a reason we have all these road kills. And so what's interesting is back in 2005, uh, there were a lot of ecologists working on this. It was, I think, just before the LED boom. When when did the LED boom sort of start? Uh, 2011, I would say, you know, full deployment. Yeah. I, yeah, okay. I would, and then it really started to go hard about 2016. Gotcha. Yeah, so these studies were showing that low-pressure sodium lamps um, for an animal that is primarily rods, so a night vision based animal, they perceive low pressure sodium as 10 times dimmer than you and I do. Mm -hmm. So what this means is you could light a roadway with low pressure sodium, you and I can see to drive safely, mm -hmm. and you're not blinding wildlife that are trying to cross these areas where we've fragmented their habitats with our roads. Um, so that was, that was really cool to learn that. And then I think everyone's, I, I mean, I don't know how much low pressure sodium is still used, at least here in North America. Um, but, you know, that's, that's like actual science that can be used to prevent the loss of wildlife, you know, and it's, it's just a wavelength of light that's different. So low pressure sodium is an interesting, um, an interesting HID source. So it was one of the first ones. I don't know if it was the first one. So it's low pressure sodium, high pressure sodium. And there's mercury vapor and metal halide. I don't know which one came first. But mercury vapor and low pressure sodium are probably the oldest ones. But what's interesting about what about low pressure sodium is it had a lot of advantages. The the it, it has very high lumens per watt, not as high as high pressure sodium, but high pressure sodium almost has the same as LED. It's pretty close, like 95 lumens a watt per watt. But it's the color temperature that people didn't like. Mm -hmm. So high pressure sodium is like a pinky orange mm -hmm. and low pressure sodium is like a yellowy orange color. But what's what's interesting about low pressure sodium that uh, that a lot of people didn't understand is the fixtures by their nature were very dark sky friendly. You, you would A low pressure sodium bulb comes in a long tube like this and they would shield the outside of it to get reflectivity off of it. It was almost like a fluorescent tube, like a short, fat fluorescent tube. And so they would shield all sides of the lamp, and the light would come straight down out of the light fixture in a way that was like, a, like how they would want a dark sky-friendly light now. And right. so I'm not, I'm not so sure that it's actually something to do with the low-pressure sodium. It's probably more has something to do with the... Uh, 
the all the light being projected down rather with leds and and then with metal halide in that you're going to have a lot of vertical foot candles coming at the animal Right. When they're looking at, when they're going towards the road, which will blind the humans too, actually. Um, right. I think, um, what it, uh, what's his name called it? He called it, uh, we're preparing for another show after this, uh, um, lost in brightness, right? You're kind of like you're the animals. And so if they have those high rods, like you said, I wouldn't say it has so much. I would say, yes, it has to do with the low color temperature. There's probably something in the spectrum, but it's also most low pressure sodium fixtures would probably be considered close to or dark sky compliant now, um, yeah. or more so than other fixtures just by the way that they were made. So I'm, I, I might get some hate mail on that, but I, I, <laughs> I well, yeah, I'm going to push back right here because I think it's a combination. I think one of the hidden benefits of the low pressure sodium uh, fixture, I, I think it's fascinating what you're bringing up, Mike, which is that because of the shape of the lamp, which uh, listeners, I just want to tell you in the lighting industry, we call light bulbs lamps. It's, yes. I find it kind of annoying because it's very confusing for anyone outside of the industry, but I'll just call it a light bulb because of the shape of the light bulb. You're saying that we actually had to design the fixtures mm -hmm. around this light bulb that then was super dark sky friendly, which is a fascinating point. But I, I have long argued that one of the hidden benefits of low pressure sodium was the fact that it had limited bandwidth. Now, interesting problem is that with sodium fixtures, the, it rendered so poorly that when first responders would come up on a traffic accident, they cannot tell the difference between blood and oil. Yeah, for sure. Now, I think that's a real problem for human activity, for sure. For sure. I think the answer is combining everything we're saying, which is that we take the long case study that we did with sodium fixtures. And as you're saying, George, I believe you when you say that those animals cannot see those wavelengths. So it's sort of emulating darkness in a certain way. And if we combine that study with dark sky form and factor, um, and then we add a little wavelength back just to create differentiation from blood and oil and anything else we may need, I think that's the future of our fixtures. Is well, Jane, Evluma has yeah. a 2200 Kelvin um, uh, outdoor uh, mimic gas light. Okay, but mm. I think the color rendering index is 85 or something like that in the wow. lab. So the, the, the problem with Kelvin temperature and color rendering is, 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 is not completely gone, but is, is almost gone by comparison. So you can have very low Kelvin temperature lamps and also have very high Kelvin temperature, um, uh, high color rendering index or what TM20, whatever you want to get. I don't want to get into that conversation here. So you're talking to some lighting dorks here, uh, George, but, um, yeah, well, so, but, but just let me just finish that one yeah. point here before you go on. The other thing, Gene, I would say is with, with the whole um, control solves so many problems with light. You mm. could change the color of the light like that. If you had a control system, you could say, give me 50% more light and make it 5,000 Kelvin because of the first responders are there in that quadrant or whatever. And they could do it now so that that wouldn't be tunable. Lighting is, is, is everywhere now. It's not a problem. So they you could solve a lot of problems simply with, that's where controls come in, comes into outdoor lighting is so good. It's such a great place for the industry to focus on and everybody's focused on indoor. I want to make one more point though. The, when here's two things that I've brought up over and over and over again on the get a grip on lighting podcast. And that is when people are talking about health effects of lighting or human centric lighting or circadian photobiology. I always say, start with people that know how to hurt and then do the opposite. So for example, um, casinos have known for a long, long time, okay, that if you shine a really bright white light in someone's face, they'll give you their paycheck, okay? So we know that some that they do the why do they do that? Well, they know that it affects the circadian rhythm. They've known it since the sixties. They know it keeps people awake. They know it puts people in sort of a bizarro trance along with the oxygen and no clocks and no windows. All that's built in. So then you look at circadian stimulus and you say, Oh, okay, you want to stimulate someone's circadian rhythm, blast them with a point three circadian stimulus uh, first thing in the morning, and it's like having a cup of coffee. It wakes people up. Right. So then what we what the lighting industry really has not gotten into, George, is the importance of vertical foot candles versus horizontal foot candles and how those things are lux or whatever word you want to throw at it, lumens. So angling the light 
you change whether it's actually visible light or if it's glare. Like if a cop comes to your car, he's going to shine the flashlight right in your face, right? And you're not going to be able to see him, but he's going to be able to see you perfectly. Or you have the walking down the street and there's a party at night in someone's house and they have the big window open and you can see everything that's going on in the room because of the contrast ratio. These things are not totally understood. And I think there's a big, with the wildlife, there's something there with the glare that comes off LED lights and hits those animals combined with flicker. They're flickering on and off 60 times a second, 100%. Okay, and then you factor into that that the light is actually not mixed as it is in low pressure sodium. So mo- low pressure and high pressure sodium is a mixed lamp, right? So the light is mixed up and then reflected off a reflector and it comes out like a sort of like a pure, not a beam. Whereas an LED diode, especially the original ones are like a beam of light, like a single beam. And so the glare factor is way, way, way higher. So there's a lot of things going on there with in comparison to low pressure sodium that aren't just spectrum and, col- and color. There's a lot of other things with LED light fixtures that we've done that we don't know that are contributing, I think, to, to glare. And glare, if you have high rods, is definitely going to impact animals at a much higher rate. So there, huh? There you go. Oh, there's all my lighting dork knowledge for you. But yeah. No, it's super cool. It's funny following you guys of... Uh... Uh, listened to a lot of lighting industry stuff recently, um, learned all kinds of things. But um, yeah, it seems to me like, you know, LED lighting is very easy to manipulate, correct? I mean, you can do anything with it. And Mm -hmm. so I guess it's sort of just an aesthetic problem right now. People think this high Kelvin light is what looks good. You know, sort of a whitish blue light is what people want to see, I guess. I I don't know. But yeah, and I I love your idea of using controls, you know, in aviation, this has been happening since the 50s, where a pilot, as they're coming into an airport, you just click your radio three times and the airfield lights up for you. So if you're landing at a rural airport or something, um, you know, so we've been using those sorts of controls for decades. And it seems very easy to have something on an ambulance or a cop car that as they pull up to a certain area, they click a button and the street lights, you know, turn up or on or whatever they need. Um, so I think there's a lot. The only dark, sp- the only dark sky place or the only place that I know of where there's dark sky fixtures is around an airport in just North of Toronto where huh. small planes come in and they come over a highway right. and on either of the angles of attack to the runway, that stretch of highway is full shielded, low Calvin temperature, dark sky lights. Like it's totally all vertical foot candles straight at the ground. Now, why do they do that? That's because glare causes people not to be able to see things properly. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no. Night vision's huge for pilots. For sure. The whole cockpit's red. You know, all your instruments mm-hmm. are red. Um, yeah, I used to, when I was younger, I drove an old German car, and I loved it because the entire dashboard was muted red at night, and I could see out my windshield when I was driving mm. that car. Everything you get now, you've got this giant computer screen uh blue dash instruments for some reason are very popular you know and i i I hate driving those cars i can't i don't i feel like i can't see at night driving i have to turn it down i have to turn the the light yeah level of the dashboard down all the way and as soon as i do that i feel better like i literally oh god so much like there can be pressure from light that's glary but at the same time you don't even know like if you're in your bed and you're looking at your phone like until you turn it down, you don't realize how much, pr- even the TV too, you don't realize how much pressure is coming at your retinas from right. those bright sources. Yeah. Um, and it's doing something to us. And I'd love to see some comparative medicine. You know, it's not just government research grants. There's actually a lot of private research grants that, you know, maybe we could, uh, you know, get, find a way to get some of that. Um, yeah. Because I think taking some of that, those like you literally, we've experimented for decades on animals with light. Right. And buried in that literature somewhere is going to be the clues of a lot of solving a lot of problem or, or stopping a lot of damage that's going on today. It's right. um, going to be in there. So right. I mean... A lot of the research has been done. Um, I don't know if you've read this book, Jane. It's the ecological oh. con. Yes. Okay. Good. Got it um, on my desk. Yep. Yeah, it's sort of the Bible. Um, but yeah. you know, and that that this is dated. This is two thousand five, I think, when it was published. But um, so much of the research has been done, and it seems like we really. I think I've heard Michael says before we need to 
start moving to the implement implementation side of things, you know, it's like sometimes I almost feel like just saying, well, the ball's in your court, guys. You know, we've <laughs> look, this, you know, this is this is not healthy for anyone. Um, we need to do something about it. Um, but I, I, I mean, there's still a lot of really interesting things to study. But yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the science we've has been done 40 years Re ago. Researchers love to have their science deployed into the field to get it um, going. The problem right now, the way I see it, Jane, I don't know if you feel the same way, is that, you know, the organization that is the patron of this podcast, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, it's the smallest lighting or organization in, in, in America, okay? And um, the least amount of money, the least amount of resources, and we're kind of at the lowest level. We're the people that actually sell the light bulbs to people, whereas there's much bigger organizations. We're under an umbrella. But I, one of the problems I think, Jane, and we've been trying to solve this for a while, is that on one hand, you have the dark sky people, and a lot of them can be a little bit negative and kind of, um, what's the right word? They're kind well, they're of- mad. Um, they're mad. They're upset. <laughs> yes. But they're kind of also resigned. You know, there's a sense of, well, I told them not to do it, and they did it anyway, and now I'm pissed, right? There's a little bit of that on the dark sky side. And then in the lighting industry side, there's like nothing to see here. Everything's great. What are you talking about? What, what do you mean? What do you mean? You don't like 5,000 Kelvin? What's the matter with you? You know, oh, the uniform light. What do you mean? It's all safe. No, everything's safe. And, you know, um, the word safety to me has lost a lot of its meaning. But how do we, the, the one question is, how do we get people out of that idea of, and I don't even, I'm just asking you like as a, I know it's not a veterinary question, but the idea of that this is safe and so we must have it and it must be pervasive and everywhere. How do we get people to walk back from that a little bit and look at it from a little further distance? I, you know, personally, and I, I, um, I, I assume you're slightly older than me, Michael, but, uh, and so I don't mean this in an insulting How dare way, you? I, yeah, I think <laughs> my generation, I, I, think, I think my generation cares about some of this stuff a little more, I, you know, I hope. And I think there's sort of an environmental consciousness that's happening right now and i hope that you know the millennials or the the zoomers or whatever you know this is something they grow up and realizing that they're missing part of their natural world and not only are they missing something they're also damaging the natural world you know yeah uh, you know my, my generation's more likely to buy a hybrid vehicle you know they, they're more interested in minimizing their impact, their carbon footprint and stuff like that. And so I hope that as we move forward, um, that perhaps that attitude will carry over into how we light things. Um, yeah. Well, I, you know, in having you here, and I, I love that I get the chance to pick a veterinarian's brain, uh, truly. Um, and I actually think that there might be something here which is that, you know, I always, and I'll say this right now, listeners, if you feel that you can approach one person and tell them about the issue of light pollution and just get five minutes to explain, this is where the grassroots movement is going to happen. And, and it's that I always say people are not monsters. They just don't know. And we could actually get the night sky back. It is a false dichotomy that safety and the night sky are at odds with one another. So the interesting tidbit bit, having a veterinarian on the show is that I think people care deeply about their pets. So I, to answer your question before, I would be delighted to set up a webinar with you and speak to vets about this issue and just get the ball rolling in your field. Because I think there's something really interesting uh, that, you know, people will watch a 30 minute webinar on what not to feed your cat. Right. So I think, you know, and I have done that. So, um, and they're not, you know, what I'm saying is a 30 minute webinar on how to give your cat circadian rhythms might actually get traction. So right. we might have sort of this like, you know, miniature wildlife uh, foot in the door with pets. 
Yeah. And, you know, I'm also, so what do you think about a, a campaign like that, that targeted people's affection with pets? Yeah. I, you know, uh, some people uh, have talked about that already is, you know, like dogs, you know, that sit in your living room, staring at the television with you till midnight, you know, how's that affecting them? Um, the research I've read has shown that, um, light from like a television that's set several feet back from you doesn't seem to mess with our circadian rhythms quite as much as staring at a phone that's six inches from your nose. Um, so yeah, the jury is kind of out on whether or not that, um, is, is, you know, if we're affecting our animals somehow, you know, obviously leaving lights on where they sleep or something is not a great idea. I, I mean, what I, there's certain, there's stuff to explore there. I don't know that there's anything concrete yet. I think what would be awesome is to like get you to a meeting in front of a bunch of wildlife veterinarians and you give your spiel, you know, Hey, there's other things happening other than the sea turtles, you know? Um, yes. And, and um, that, that's sort of, we a, only want to save the cute animals. <laughs> right. Yeah. No one cares about the plankton. Yeah. I, yeah you know, and we only want to save the cute animals. It's a funny, right. it's a funny thing. Um, the, uh, if I may, Jane, I, I look at this, the, the, there's all manner of awareness creation that we can do to get this issue moving forward. Um, you know, some of it has to be, uh, around demystifying darkness, right? That, or not demystify, or remystifying it, perhaps emphasizing beauty. Um, cause quite frankly, not only are the led light outdoor lights, bright glare bombs and uniform and 5,000 Kelvin, but they, they look super ugly too. Like when you look at them, they're ugly and they're, um, they're not nice looking pieces of architecture or nice looking pieces of um, infrastructure. I mean, they could be made way more beautiful. And then uh, on top of that, there's all manner of uh, problems with the ecosystem and there's human health. I, I really believe though that, the human health one is by far the most powerful argument to make, Jane. Um, you know, whether it's the flicker issue or the the dark sky, the, the light trespass, I really think that the that there are, if we could discover more concretely what, what it is that's causing us to, like causing health problems from light, it would be um, a very powerful way to move the message forward. Well, yeah. getting into that, because there's something here with tying it to human health, which will incentivize humans, and what you're doing, George, with comparative anatomic uh, study of animals and how it relates. So you are fascinated with the retina. And you, you were just saying how, I, I've heard that too, the television is far enough away, and that it's the direct, if you've ever closed your eyes and you see a rectangle of your phone, uh, you're creating a circadian stimulation, no yeah. doubt. Can you yeah. talk about the distribu distribution of light on your retina that, um, that is what's scientifically happening there? Yeah. Um, so new multiple things are happening. And for a long time, uh, we had sort of this simplistic vision, um, idea of the retina that it was just rods and cones, these two receptors. But what we've learned are there are these intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. So just intrinsically photosensitive cells. And they, they don't, um, they don't necessarily play into our vision, but they are stimulated by light and they have a direct connection, um, to our supra chias, um, uh, chiasmatic nucleus. I'm saying that wrong. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's, it's a direct shot from those cells to there. And it's, it's separate from the, uh, the neural connections that are involved in our vision. So we have this mechanism, all of us, you know, hamsters have it uh, built into our eyes that is just for the physiologic response to light. So whether that's, you know, inhibiting the secretion of melatonin or stimulating a sympathetic or parasympathetic reaction or something like that. So there's this unique anatomy sitting in our eyeballs that we didn't really know about until recently. Um, 
so I, you know, I think that's just fascinating that there's this whole other part of our eye used for something other than seeing, you know, and it's, it's directly mm -hmm. tied to, uh, you know, th th there's connections that go from those cells to our thalamus, uh, which is sort of the, the easiest way to think of the thalamus. It's very complicated, but like the, the switchboard of your brain, it's, it's what connects, it's what routes the information to everything else. Um, it goes to our amygdala from our photo sensitive cells straight to the amygdala, which is sort of our lizard brain emotional response factory. So, you know, God knows what's happening when you're stimulating that at one in the morning watching YouTube, you know, um, <laughs> I, I would love to do a study just on, you know, what happens to the amygdala when you overstimulate it with blue light, you know, and what, how's that affecting my mood and my behavior? Because that, I mean, the amygdala plays a huge role in, you know, how I behave and whether or not I can control, you know, outbursts of anger and stuff like that. Cause that's what your amygdala mm. wants to respond. And then the rest of your brain's trying to keep it under control. Um, mm. and, yeah. And these cells are just sitting there we had, we had no idea they were there. Um, and some blind people who, uh, if they've lost, they have a disease that basically deletes their rods and cones, but still have those, they can actually see some sort of shadow or something. So they, they, they can sort of they see a movement. Station. They'll see yeah. you. They won't see your hand, but they'll know your hand's moving in front of them like this. Yeah, I right. read a, I read an article about that. That's yeah. that's fascinating. Do we do we know what the hell's going on? I mean, that one of the things that I always when I when I um, uh, as I've grown up and I've looked at the lighting industry and you know watched it develop and then posted a five four years of four or five years of doing, interviewing all the professionals and all the scientists and all the manufacturers is that. We're learning everything as we go along. Like nobody right. actually knows what this does. Like right. there's absolutely no idea. And the, they started off with the assumption, you know, in lighting that, um, hey, you know what? Energy efficiency is good. We need as much energy efficiency as we can possibly get. And um, we want white light because people, oh, yeah, it's white. That's yeah. if, you, if you take anybody into a room and ask them what color they want the lights to be and you show them a white light beside it yellow light this is me from working in 20 years they're always going to say the white light right. they're almost always going to say 5000k and there's something to the photopic scotop that makes it look brighter or something like that to us us humans but the fact is nobody actually wants 5000 kelvin if you if you stop them from looking at the light except maybe right. in factories and stuff like that so yeah. what the question i have is is you know uh or not the question the observation i'm making is that it seems like we go along as we humans we move forward we screw things up we try to hide it. <laughs> um, when it comes out, you know, oh, shoot, people try to avoid blame. And, uh, you know, and then from there, it's like, okay, well, maybe we'll fix it. Oh, someone got sued. Okay, better fix it. Someone got sued again. Oh, this is starting to cost a lot of money. Let's fix it. And that's the recall or whatever. The, the, the brake pads get recalled on the car after 10 deaths or something like that. They have some metric. You know, and it's, that's very discouraging to me that we think about things like this, you know, like yeah. that's kind of how the world works. We change something. Everybody thinks it's going to be great. You know what? It, it, you know why it's going to be good? Because I've come up with this rationale logic that makes so much sense to me. I'm a naked ape. And, but you know, I know what's going to happen when I do this and we have all these unintended consequences all over the place. You know, and then you hear about like the stuff in the like, oh, what we need to do is spray some of this RNA as a uh, mRNA thing we've invented with the vaccines. We're going to use it as pesticides for crops. Yeah. Oh, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, <laughs> I, I just think to myself, like, what the hell? Like, how do they cook these schemes up? Even like the climate engineering where they want to like, oh, you know what we should do? Oh, we should put particles of terrible. glass into yeah. the atmosphere to re-reflect like like, have, does nobody read history? Like, I, I don't understand. It's like the human species. It's a one continuous, big, long f up, for, you know, for, yep. from the industrial <laughs> revolution to today. Yep. You know, I don't know. I'm just yep. beefing here, but it, it's like, yeah. when are we? When are we going to step back from things and look at it and and you know and say, what is this? What are we doing with this? And right. that doesn't seem to happen. It's it's interesting from a historical perspective. I I read an article recently, I think it was, I may have the time frames wrong here, but uh, sometime sort of before the beginning of Judeo-Christianism, we, um, that, that transition is when humans started to see themselves as not 
part of the planet, you know, not part of the ecosystem mm. anymore. Um, so around that time, and prior to that, we, you know, acknowledged our place in the food chain and our dependence on the planet and our, you know, that we were essentially, anim you know, migrating animals. Um, uh, yeah, and, and some, I think, you know, that's sort of the root of a lot of our problems. You know, you guys say it on every single show, how do we, why do we think of ourselves as so separate from the natural world? And um, I think it's interesting to think about where that mindset started, um, but it's certainly, certainly out of control now. And uh, yeah, what you're talking about, Michael, all these crazy ideas people have for trying to fix these problems we've created. Uh, there's a huge movement in ecology right now. I really should have been an ecologist. I think that would have fit me better, but it's okay. Um, uh, it's called rewilding. It's this idea where you just leave things alone. You don't, you know, if, if there's trees growing there that didn't used to grow there, whatever, leave them alone, let them grow, let that ecosystem sort itself out, you know? And, and so that's a big part of rewilding. The other thing is trying to preserve tracts of land that aren't fragmented by roads and stuff like that. But, and there's a lot to rewilding, but the biggest philosophy is just leave it alone, you know? When you log a hardwood forest, uh, my family used to be in the forestry industry, um, it takes about 900 years, they think, for that forest, if left alone, to return to the state it was in before you logged it. So we are screwing with things and messing with things on a time scale that we just, we can't even comprehend, you know. Um, but I, I really like this idea of just leaving things alone um, from an ecological standpoint. I absolutely love the word rewild. I think it's such an important concept that's immediately graspable when you say it. And I recently uh, amplified a post on Instagram and it was a video and it said, um, what happens when you let an ecosystem rewild? It heals. And yep. I think that there is a knowingness to these complex systems that is able to find its way back into balance without us. And I think that's a fascinating point. And, and George, I want to take advantage and ask you this question that I ask often of our guests, um, which is, you know, when we talk about animal health, plant health, biodiversity, ecosystem balance, and, and the fact that you love ecology, uh, why does night matter? That's, you know, that's a, I, that's a great question. I, there's, I, I know there's something like uh, visceral in me when I was in the military, a lot of times, cause our sleep schedules were so whack. Um, there'd be times where I had to sleep like in barracks with fluorescent lights on all night. And it was, it was like, it was like a pain, like a physical pain to tr like try and sleep there. And you just wanted darkness you were starving for darkness and um <laughs> I, yeah it's a, it's like a visceral thing with me you know it's 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 physical and it's a it's emotional it's like uh the, you know I, I i don't know really how to put it into words i think the name of your podcast is actually perfect but um yeah it's like a it's like a physical pain when i i can't have what's supposed to be there you know, and it, and it, I think it's extra frustrating because it's light pollution in theory is not that hard to fix. You know, this is not like deforestation or something that I have to wait a thousand years for it to correct itself. I mean, it's, it is quite literally the flip of a switch if you get people to think about it. Um, and so I think that's, that sort of adds to the, the visceral pain that my neighbor could just turn their safety light off in my, my land would be dark again. I would have night again mm. of a neighbor with an unshielded light on the side of his barn. And ever since they've moved in, it hasn't been dark. And, you know, mm. I live on 25 acres. It has not been dark since he arrived. So, um, yeah, I need to go. Send them the, the link to this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I know. Joey, shield your light. <laughs> you know, you know, what's interesting. Like I'll give you, you mentioned about the forests. Okay. So I don't know what, when they started, but somewhere around like 1720 um, to about, um, say, 1950, okay? 
every single tree in Ontario, southern Ontario was cut down. A lot of people don't realize that. Like Algonquin Park, the Kawartha Highlands Provincial Park, all these massive parks that are enormous, okay, huge areas. Every single tree was cut down. And my, my father-in-law's caught it. They flooded these areas to make massive dam infrastructures to get this wood out of Ontario, okay? It was a huge operation. And they did it by hand, yeah. okay? And there was a whole art movement that started and there's like a myth about the meeting, the group of seven, where somebody described a chainsaw to them, you know, they're like, it's like Mordor or something, you know, it's like we had, they've invented, you got to go up and paint the wilderness because they've invented this thing called a chainsaw and it, what it does is it cuts down these enormous trees. My father-in-law's land was in one of these areas that was flooded to make a dam. And then the water is lowered by eight feet over the course of the summer to keep the dam. It's like the holding tank for the entire lock. That's his, his cottage is on that lake. And then you watch the water go down and there's these enormous stumps in the water. You see them and they're like two or three feet across. There's no trees that are two or three feet across in that, in that area. And all the trees are 200 years old. Yep. Like the forest yep. was completely clear cut, right? And all the trees now, the biggest tree you're going to see is about maybe a foot and a half thick. And that's after 200 years. Right. Yeah. And but, it's, it's like the night sky. What you're looking at is not what should be there. You know, mm-hmm. uh, this, the same thing happened here in North Carolina. Uh, we have a very, uh, all, the entire Western part of the state, uh, which is very mountainous, was completely logged in the 18, uh, 18th to the earliest 20th century. There's 400 acres left in Western North Carolina. It's a park now that was not logged. It's the only place <laughs> that has. And they did it by hand. Think about it. Yeah, they did it by horses. hand. Yeah, we, we were industrious little destructive creatures when we set our minds to it. We're um, awesome too, though. I mean, it's also awesome. Like what they did was incredible. I mean, whether yeah, you don't no, like it or phenomenal. not, it's a huge, right. massive operation what they did. But. Yeah, yeah. George, yeah. have you been to that park that has remained wild? And when you go there, does it feel different? I have, I have been, it's, it's in a very inconvenient spot. It's probably why it wasn't logged. Um, I have not been to it. And I, yeah, my How wife dumb. hears me, my wife hears me whining about trying to go there at least once a month. Um, but someday I will get there. It's, it's well, still I sort would... of, go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say, I would say go there because I had this experience where my friends, they moved to this really weird part of Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I live, mm-hmm. which is very urbanized, except yeah. this place had not been touched. It was like the one last place. It's owned privately. And I showed up at their new place and I was like, this place feels wild. And they said, actually, it's true. It's one of the last places in Cambridge that has not actually been demolished and reconfigured for human human convenience so i say go to that location and feel the difference between however many years old that forest is and the other ones i'm sure they're still beautiful but there is a very big difference between a forest that has that age to it and one that is just kind of come along after the fact it's just a feeling of integration of all those living living beings in balance that is unbelievable and amazing. And, you know, I want to say, George, that, you know, I, I visited your dad's um, veterinary practice and your your thumbnail is still on that site. And it was very, very clear how heartfelt the approach uh, towards animals was. It, it was very clear. It came right through on the site. So I feel like that's in your blood. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and for really seeing the gap because I think what Mike says often is that, you know, we just don't know We're we're still kind of, you know, clamoring around trying to figure our way out through this mess. And it's really helpful to have professionals come on the show saying, hey, my field is not aware enough of this. And we need to raise this awareness through these kind of clunky conversations where we're like, well, what do you know? What do you know? Because we don't really have all the answers. And so it's only in this integration, like that wild forest, like in our field work, that when we can come together and bridge these gaps, that it's super important. So thank you so much for seeing that gap and for bridging it. And yes. I want to just ask you, is do you have any final comments that you want to share with our listeners about the topic, what, what it means to you and, and what you plan to do in the future? 
Yeah. I, I, you know, if I could leave the listeners with one thing, it would be biology rests on a, on a razor blade. We, we are perched on this razor blade of evolution and, and any deviation to one side or the other, and you're going to have pathology. You're, there's going to be sickness. So, and, and so you have to remember just, you are part of this planet. You are a, an extension of it. You're, you're like a limb on it. And that we need to remember that. Um, and how, carefully we have to be with ourselves well thank you so much it was a pleasure to have you yeah george thanks thank you. guys yep. great talking to you you starved now you're sated that's right i was starving for darkness with host jane slade and myself co-host michael colligan but before we go we got to tell you about a little magic that we discovered in the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, and I'm talking about Evluma, coming out with a massive, awesome, crazy, magical LED dark sky ready luminaire for the outside, Greg. A-E-V-L-U-M-A.com, the magicians. That's right. And in addition to what we talked about at the beginning, they have a photo control fail-safe built into the fixture. Come on. And that actually, yeah, that, that replaces the need to have to worry about a photo cell down the road. I love so if that. If your photo man. cell burns out, it learns what it needs to do so that it continues to operate as though the photocell is still working. That's why they're ma it's and magical, then, brother. It's magic. magic. And then on top of that, they have the Connect LED that is a wireless lighting management system. Use your phone, control that thing, get fancy. Oh, man. Evluma is so hot with these products, man. I just love it. Go to evluma.com. That's evluma.com. Proudendale member, National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Yeah, baby. Come and get it. Bye for now.